First uh, Samuel 17, and today we are reading verses 1 through 11. And the title of today's sermon is, We Die to the Lord. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with the coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then, he will, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you, will be, you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine stood, or excuse me, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so today we begin chapter 17, and chapter 17 is a chapter that pretty much all, you know, every Christian knows in 1 Samuel. And uh, the reason why we all know this is because it's the story of David and Goliath. If you were raised in church, you were probably taught this in Sunday school. If you had godly parents or grandparents, this was a story that was either read to you or, or, or told to you as a child. So that's why I, I say it's safe to assume that if not all, most Christians know this story. But even many non-Christians are familiar with this story because of how often it is used in a worldly sense to bring motivation to people. Uh, so, so even outside of the church, this is a, a famous story. And the reason why it brings motivation to people is because a common interpretation of this passage is that Goliath represents our trouble, whatever trouble we're facing uh, that day. And uh, David is a representation of us. That's, that's a common interpretation of this passage. But to that, we need to ask a couple of questions. Is that what God really intended for this passage? And then also, if that's what really he intended, or if that's what God really intended, does God get the glory in that type of situation? If Goliath is our trouble, and we are Goliath, or we are David, does God get the glory in that situation? I, the answer for that is no, he does not get the glory. So when we look at this passage, it's, it's important for us to understand uh, the roles correctly, and we're going to take our time going through this. We're going to spend four sermons in chapter 17, because in this chapter here is the gospel. It points to the New Testament and the coming of Christ. And it's important for us to really understand what these roles are or who they're supposed to be and what they represent. All that is very, very important to, for us understanding the gospel. And I think God's timing is awesome because 
you know, we're in February, we're going to go through March with this sermon, and then we're going to come right up to Easter. And uh, I, I, we need to be reminded uh, of the gospel, not only every single Sunday, but as we approach Easter and we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, as I said, a common interpretation of this passage is that Goliath is the trouble and David is uh, a representation of us. And we know the story where David kills Goliath and we overcome our troubles. But when we align the roles correctly, we come to understand uh, the significance of the text, what it's really telling us and what it's teaching concerning God's promise to his redeemed people or rather God, God's promise to redeem his people from their sin and then also to save them from death. So if we are to look at this from a representation standpoint, Goliath represents the enemy um, and then humanity represents the Israelites and then God represents David. And that's the way I want us to look at this and that's the way it's intended for us to look at this is that Goliath is the, the, the forces of evil, the, the Satan and the forces of evil. Humanity are the Israelites. Uh, that includes us as well, even, even the, the church. And then God represents uh, David here in this passage. And when we look at it this way, what's being taught to us is that God was promising that he would save his people from their greatest enemy. And he would do that through Jesus Christ. And so we see that being promised here in the Old Testament, and then we go to the New Testament, and we see how God did that through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and how today we get to celebrate that fact and, and just, just bask in it, and we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who saved us. So in today's sermon, this is what I want to do. I want to identify, number one, who's the greatest enemy of mankind, and then number two, uh, how, helpless, how helpless we are against that enemy without the Lord. So let's start by basically looking at the passage and, and just gaining a better understanding of it. If you, for those of you who come every single Sunday, I, I, think, I hope you get the pattern of, of the way I preach, especially through a historical narrative. And what I mean by that is that a story, a story that really happened, but uh, basically telling you a story of, of, of real events pointing to Christ and what I like to do with the historical narrative a lot of times is, is to exegete the passage first. And what I mean by exegete is to go in there and, and go through the passage that I read to you so that we can, we can get the details of the story, we can understand context, and then we can understand what the passage is about. And then from there, we gain a biblical truth. Uh, that's what I do after that. I pull out a biblical truth uh, for us to understand, to hear and to understand. And then lastly, what I like to do is give an application so that when you walk out of here, you, you, there's something that, that you can actually follow or do or know uh, and, and praise the Lord for it. So uh, I'm just giving you a high level uh, view of, of how the sermon flows. So if you're taking notes or anything, you know what to expect. But let's first start off with exegeting the passage. Um, Chapter 16 covers David's anointing as king of Israel. Uh, Saul had disobeyed the Lord, and, and he was told by Samuel, who the Lord spoke through, that the, the kingdom would be torn from him. And the very first steps of that was David's anointing. So Samuel was sent to anoint David in a private ceremony, and that is all covered in chapter 16. Also, we see God's divine activity to place David in the presence of Saul and then also in, in the people, in front of the people, so that they could see God's anointing on him. 
And we see God working all that out through his providence. David was there to calm Saul. What was he calming him from? Well, at the same time that the Lord had given David his spirit to enable him to become king, uh, he, God removed the spirit, his spirit from Saul and then put a harmful spirit in him that would torment him. And uh, it caused all kind of frustration and pain for Saul. But the, the, the thing was, God arranged that when David came into Saul's presence and he, he played for him, he played music for him, then, then it calmed the, the, the harmful spirit in David in Saul, and then he would get relief from that. And so you can see providentially how God placed uh, David in the service of Saul and how David gained the favor of Saul. And he also began to, this put him in a limelight to where people could see him and know who he was. And it's really awesome to see God working in the background of all these things. So then that's how chapter 16 goes. But then here we stand in chapter 17 and we see Saul again with the Israelites. And now David is not with them at this point in time. So apparently what we can gather from that is that this harmful spirit came upon Saul at certain times. Didn't remain on him all the time. It came upon him at certain times. And then there was there was times where he was relieved from that. But but the Lord, through his providence, was in charge of sending that spirit to Saul to torment him. Well, right now, this is a season of him not being tormented. So David's services are are no longer needed in this case. And you'll see that as we get into uh, more of this chapter. But here in chapter 17, we have Saul and we have the Israelites and they, they are gathered for battle. And guess who, guess who they're fighting? They're fighting the Philistines again. They're, they're up against the Philistines again. And Israel and the Philistines, we understand, have been rivals since the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation. And all the way through the, the book that we are in right now, 1 Samuel, um, they, they have been fighting a, a lot of different times so far. I want to go back just to recap some of those battles or some of those conflicts. First Samuel chapter four. I don't know if you remember this, but we saw Israel was defeated by the Philistines. God used the Philistines to actually defeat Israel to teach them a lesson about idolatry. And then in first Samuel chapter five, the ark of the, the covenant of the Lord uh, defeated the Philistines. That's when they, they captured the ark. They took it back and they put it in the temple of their God, Dagon, and then when they woke up in the morning, Dagon was torn to shreds. He was, he was no limbs and his head was chopped off. And, you know, then they, then they became sick and they started to get like all these sores on themselves. And they sent the Ark of the Covenant uh, to other different places. And wherever the Ark went, people began to be sick and get sores. And so they basically got rid of the Ark. They were like, okay, we, we surrender to the Ark of the Covenant. So that's why I say in 1 Samuel 5, that the Ark of the Covenant defeated the Philistines. Then in 1 Samuel 7, we see that the Lord defeated the Philistines through Samuel. And then in 1 Samuel 13, we see that the Israelites ran and hid from the Philistines. This is where the Philistines, they gathered all their armies together and Saul hardly had an army at all. And the Philistines came against the Israelites and everybody ran and hid, including Saul. Then in uh, chapter 14, we see that the Lord defeated the Philistines through Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son, was the one who was brave and bold, and him and his armor bearer went, started the fight, and then the Lord went from there, or took over from there. So as you can see, that's, that's five different situations where there's tension between the Philistines and the Israelites. Well, this marks the sixth occasion here in 1 Samuel. 
And the thing is, is that the Philistines were such a problem for Saul that in uh, chapter 14, verse 52, it says that when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant, uh, valiant man, he attached himself to him. So if he saw any strong man, any man worth fighting, any man who, whose service he could use in his army, he grabbed them and put them in his service. And the reason why he was building that army was because of the Philistines. They were fighting the Philistines over and over. So there are actually other battles that are not recorded specifically in this passage that, that, that they had with the Philistines. And because of that, Saul built up this huge army that he had. Now the Philistines, now they're back again and they conquered some of Israel's territory. They're actually, right now in, in the passage that we're reading, they're in Israel territory, so they're a threat again. And that's why Saul and his armies have met them. They are at the Valley of Elah. And this is what the passage says in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Now, this is a, a great picture of what's happening here. It's a standstill. These armies are on one side of each other. There's a, a, a valley between them, and no one is advancing. And it makes sense that no one is advancing because as soon as one advances, the other, the other has the upper hand. They have the higher ground. And there's a lot more you can do with the higher ground. So it's kind of at a, at a standstill. Unless someone agrees, to, okay, we're going we're, we're gonna, to, both armies are going to go down to the valley at the same time. Ready? One, two, Right? That doesn't work out. Remember doing that as kids and trying to, trying to trick your brother or sister into thinking that you're going to do something? So they're just standing there and they're, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for an opportunity to attack one another. And scripture says that there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's verse 4. Now, here's some interesting things. The, the word champion here means one who stands in the middle or one who stands in between. Uh, one who is basically protecting uh, the other people from danger. So Goliath is one who is seen as it stands in the middle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And he's there to protect the Philistines. Now, Goliath was nine and a half feet tall. There, uh, most interpre interpreters are agree with that nine and a half feet tall there are some that say he was even taller than that but I think that's a safe uh, safe bet to uh, to go to uh, even at nine and a half feet that is extremely impressive um, a, he was a descendant of the Anakites and possibly the Nephilim that we read about in uh, the book of Genesis uh, the Anakites I want to remind you are the people that the Israelites feared remember in Genesis uh, they feared them so much that they did not take possession of the promised land. But instead, they wandered the desert for 40 years. And this is, this is their seed here, so to speak. Uh, Goliath is from those people. So not only was Goliath an impressive size, but also his armor was like nothing that the Israelites had ever seen before or ever dealt with before. Uh, his bronze helmet weighed 30 pounds. Now, 30 pounds for a helmet. That's amazing. I don't know how well, I guess that, that suited him well for fighting, but how can even someone turn their head with a 30-pound helmet? Uh, his coat of armor alone weighed 150 pounds. He was carrying a person on him. 
The shaft of his spear was 15 pounds, and then the spear point weighed another 15 pounds. So basically, when you add all that up together, that's 210 pounds between his armor and, his, and, and the weapons that he carried. And I hadn't even mentioned his shield. He needed a person just to carry his shield. He didn't have an armor bearer. He had a shield bearer. So no telling how much that weighed. Now, his armor and his weapons alone, they weighed more than the average Israelite. 210 pounds. I'm willing to bet, you know, in, in the army of the Israelites, there was no one that weighed that much. Think of how intimidating that was to look across and see this champion. And he's calling one person out, not, not the whole army. He's saying, I want one person to face me. Goliath was not only intimidating as far as the way he looked, but he was as mean as he was strong. And he challenged the army of the Israelites. Look at verses 8 and 9. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, what's really interesting here is that some believe that Goliath's challenge was a a war tactic to prevent uh, a battle with the Israelites. And the reason why some believe that is because Saul's army at this point would have been enormous. He was just building his army and they were conquering people and they were they were winning battles because the spirit of the Lord was with them. But remember what happened. The spirit of the law, the, the Lord left Saul at this point. But up until this point, he's just building this enormous army. So the Philistines' best chance would have been to select a champion against champion type of win-it-all situation. That kind of, it makes sense. I don't know how important it is to understand in the passage, but it makes a lot of sense. Because uh, imagine when you were kids and you're you're playing against a friend or you're playing against a sibling, um, or even now you're playing a game and you're losing. And you see that there is no chance that you can win. And you say, what do you say? Next point wins. Right? You're like, oh, I can't win. So let's see if he's going to bite on this. Next point wins the whole game. And that's kind of like what's going on here. It's like, oh, we may not have a chance against this Israelite army. So let's pick our best fighter against their best fighter. And whoever wins gets to serve the other. That's, that's pretty much what is on the line here. So in response... We see in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In other words, they they were filled with terror and afraid to do anything against this giant, against this champion. They were so afraid they could not advance. They were so afraid they could not think. They were so afraid they could not answer this challenge of Goliath. And as I said before, at this point, we need to remember that the Lord had rejected Saul and had removed his spirit from him. The same spirit that enabled him to be a great fighter at times was now removed. Remember, we said that this was not a regenerating type of removement from Saul, but rather this was an equipping for uh, his, his role as the king of Israel. 
So God removing his spirit, he wasn't the same soldier that he was before. Saul no longer was a new man as he was described in the Bible. Rather, he was his old self and that quality that he had in him, well, the Lord had removed that from him. I read a quote from Matthew Henry and it really blessed me. He says this, As the best, so the bravest men are no more than what God makes them. That is so true. That is so true to have God's blessing, to have his favor, to have his empowerment through the spirit. I can't imagine what it's like to have that removed. And feel like you once felt before to not have the ability that God has given you to be able to do what he has called you to do. It's an extreme blessing. So whatever credit we have to us for the talent that we have or for the good that we do, it all goes to all the glory goes to God. Now, if you compare, if, if you want to, for us to look at the Israelite army and to select a man who should have fought Goliath, it should have been Saul. Because Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Remember that? Whenever they saw him, he, they were like, wow, he's tall. He, let, let him be our king. He's impressive. And so he was head and shoulders tall and Compared to all the other Israelites, uh, he was the champion that, that the nation had chosen as king. It was him who have, should have accepted Goliath's challenge, but instead he cowered and all of his men followed his example. And this is not the first time that Saul has cowered. Remember when they chose him to be king? He wasn't there at his own uh, ceremony Oh, he was there, but he was hiding in the luggage. They had to pull him out of the luggage. And then they were like, yeah, you're going to be a great king. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. But not only that, but also the story that I just told you about where the, the Philistines came against him and they were outnumbered and he ran and hid in a cave. And, and all the Israelites either retreated, uh, they, they deserted the army, and they also hid in caves with them. Uh, if you're... For us, this is really important. I, I really do, especially for the men in here. Uh, it's, it's important that we set the right tone. Not only in, in leadership, it's important that we set the right tone because those who follow us, they follow us, good and bad. And so we see here a man who is fearful, man who hides. And what do his people do? They are fearful and they hide. They cower because their leader cowers. So that's just a side note for us, what we do and, and how we represent ourselves and also how we represent the Lord. It matters. Our leadership matters. And so Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, stood between the two armies waiting for someone to accept his challenge. It should have been Saul. And guess what? There was no man there that could have said, oh, I would have went and fought him, but I didn't hear him because it says all Israel heard his words. You, there's always that one guy. You know that guy, right? He's like, oh, I would have done something if I would have known or if I would have heard him. No, all Israel heard his words, but all were filled with terror and all were afraid to do anything. There was no one, not one who could step forward to take on a champion like Goliath. Now, as we understand the story and, and, and we understand the, the, the context now, let's look at the biblical truth behind it. 
You see, when we look at this, first of all, we must know that this is a real story. Sometimes we see a story like this and, and we remember our childhood or we remember being told about this story and it almost takes on like a fantasy type of story for us where it's like, oh, that was just a great story as a kid. I remember that. I love that. And we, we seem to forget that it's a real story and, and we have to go back there and we have to realize, yes, this is a real story. This is considered a historical narrative and it teaches us the history of the nation uh, the history of the nation of Israel under the rule of Saul and David. So these things really happened. But, the, but it stands for something else. There's, there's a deeper meaning behind it. It's pointing out who our greatest enemy is. And who our champion is as well. See, we must know, we must also know that God used these real events to foreshadow what was to come. And this is one of those cases. David, as we understand it, was a Christ-like figure. Don't get confused. He was not Christ. He was not perfect. He was full of sin. That's not what a Christ-like figure is. A Christ-like figure is basically just pointing to someone who would come to save his people. David simply was just a better king than Saul. He was a better king than Saul, just like Christ was a better Adam than the first Adam. David was, or Saul was after uh, the heart of the people. The Bible says that David was after God's own heart, just like Christ was. And so David is a Christ-like figure. And, and so we have to understand that as we look through this passage. See, this story is not about, is not about the heroics of, of David, but rather of God. And God, with all his might, or excuse me, Goliath, with all his might and intimidation, along with the Philistines, represented the, great, represented the greatest enemy that mankind has ever known. That is Satan and the realm of evil. Um, Richard Phillips says this in his commentary about, about that whole representation thing. He says, Goliath represents for us spiritual opposition to God and his people, especially as manifested by Satan and his demonic forces. Not only did his, his size reflect the great power of Satan, but Goliath's mocking depicted Satan's hostility and hatred against the Lord and his people. So as we look at this, Goliath represents so much more than just this champion of that day. He was a real person. Uh, he was really that tall. He was really that strong. And, and he, was, he was there challenging the Israelites. No one was responding to him. And, but that meant more than just that battle. It was pointing to something God would do, but also it was pointing to us as, as people, how helpless we are against the greatest enemy that we have, Satan and the realm of evil. There was no one, no, not one, who could step forward to fight Goliath. Now, I use that phrase very on purpose, very purposely, because it should remind you of us. There is no one, no, not one. It should remind you of us. Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's what it should remind us of. Goliath is their champion. He's standing there. He represents everything that is horrible, everything that is evil, everything that opposes God. And he's standing there in front of the Israelites and he says, I challenge you today. Somebody come and defeat me. And not one could. It's the same way as we look at Satan and the realm of evil and and we we are standing there and we're caught in this battle. None of us are righteous. No, not one. None of us understand. No one, none of us seek for God. We have all turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good. Not one of us. So you see, when we see this passage and we see what it represents, we are the cowardly Israelites depicted here. That's us. And as Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, we run and hide from him because of his power over our lives. And that is true because we have all fallen at the hands of Satan at one point or another. See, when it is us against him, one-on-one, we stand no chance. History has proven that, and our own sin continues to prove it. It proves it to us today. So when we see that, it's like, well, where's our hope? Where, where is it? Where's our hope? And that brings us to our application. Let me answer that, and then I'll get to the application. See, the biblical truth here is that we are not capable of challenging Satan and the realm of evil on our own. We cannot be our own champion. Our only hope comes in the Lord. That is the biblical truth. So how do we apply that? Well, we have to understand that our only hope in life and death is Christ. See, in our passage, Saul stands with this enormous, I combined the two words, enormous army of men. Saul stands with this enormous army of men who are terrified of this great champion. Just, just, uh, he has every opportunity to, to win. God has given him every opportunity. Does that remind you of somebody? It reminds me of Adam and Eve. Every opportunity to win the battle against sin, and they failed. That's a depiction of what I see with Saul and this enormous army of men who stand behind him. They're all fearful of one man. Well, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of dying. That's what they're afraid of. It's like when they battle another man that is comparable to them, it's like, well, I know my percentages of dying go down a lot. Because I may be able to buy, I may be able to fight him, I may be able to defeat him. But when you see someone like Goliath, they're like, "There's no way. This is this is a death sentence to me if I go down there and fight." So what they're afraid of, they're afraid of dying, and that makes a lot of sense for us because if we look at dying, isn't that the greatest fear of man? It's death. 
Like, let's be honest. The, the process of death is, is terrifying. There, there's no one that, that, that just stands there and says, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely ready for it and I'm willing to do it. And doesn't matter how it happens. I'm OK with it. God helps us to come to grips with it. He helps us to accept it. He never leaves us alone, but, but that's the greatest fear of man. So the greatest enemy is Satan and the realm of evil, but the greatest fear of man is death. And those two work hand in hand. Satan was, has deceived mankind, and we have all died. And before we met the Lord, we were under his rule, and that meant we were the living dead, basically. We moved, we breathed, we, we, but we served him. We, we were dead in our sins. See, we are so much concerned about death that it drives our lives, drives our words and our actions. There are some people who won't even speak of death over the fear that it may come true. You start talking about death and when you die, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Stop. You know, the angel of death may hear you. Be quiet. Don't say anything. We spend a fortune trying to prolong our death. Some have spent a fortune trying to defeat death, trying to freeze themselves so that when the cure of whatever they have comes into play, we can bring them back to life, uh, bring them back to life, so to speak. And, and, you know, we may say, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, not fear, I'm not fearful of death. Well, if we don't think death has that much of an impact on society today, then what about the last two years? With COVID-19 and all the fear that have come from that. Much fear going on there. Still much fear today. People are just afraid every single day. And why are they afraid? Because they're afraid of dying. Look, as Christians, we can't we 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 can't make that go away. There will be fear. But as Christians, we cannot and must not forget that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference for us. You see, we need to look at death as a formidable enemy. It's not easy. It's not, it's, it's, it's not something that we can just brush aside, not for us or for anybody. We must remind ourselves of Christ daily. If we don't, we're going to be paralyzed by the fear of death. So, I want to share a dream with you that I had, and I know I feel people squirming in their seats already. I don't want to make this any kind of mystical dream or anything like that. And I also am not here to tell you that this was special revelation for me, and I'm not prophesying to you today. Okay, let's, let's get that out of the way. Now, there was this dream that I had, and it was extremely encouraging to me. And, and the only way I saw it, the way I saw it was that God was reassuring me of, of my loss of hope when I needed it the most. And there's a passage that is tied into as well, because I, I do believe that the Lord speaks to us in many different ways through his word. 
And there are things that point us to his word to remind us like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And, and that's all I chalk up this dream to be. But it happened a long time ago. I lost my mother in 2004. She fought a courageous battle with cancer. In fact, my mother had cancer three different times. She beat it twice. And then the last time I, I refuse to say that it defeated her. I, it just the Lord re- relieved her from it. Because she's not defeated. She's in his presence now. So my mother suffered a lot, and we were there the whole time. Alicia and I were there through the whole process. And um, yeah, it was very difficult, and it's been, even, it's been so long, and it's, it's still difficult today. I saw her wither away. I saw her suffer. She was only 48 years old when she passed away. I was 27 years old. So this, this sickness and seeing your, your mother go the way she went, she, yeah, she did suffer a lot. Yeah, it was painful to see. She was not always strong. And I do believe that's why the Lord had us there, to, to soothe her and to help her in this transition in life. To read scripture to her as she's lying there, to pray with her, to do all these things that we were able to do for her. But after she passed away, I wasn't ready for what followed. You know, I was 27 years old. Uh, Who can prepare themselves for the loss of a parent? That's a difficult thing. And so after my mother's passing, I started to suffer from a depression. And this was something that I, I suffered alone, mostly, and I say alone, but my wife and I, she helped me through it. But it wasn't like we were that I was open about it back then. I was prideful, private. I didn't understand the blessings of a church fully. And I did not understand how healthy it would be to talk to other people about it. But my wife prayed for me and helped me through it. But I, I still suffered through this depression and, and I, it got it got ugly. As far as my own internal thoughts and my own battles, I was mad at God. I was, I went through all kind of different things. And it got so ugly that I would say it got demonic at times. Because as my, my dreams got, as, as my depression got deeper, my dreams got ugly and my dreams became demonic. That's what I meant to say. And so sometimes I would go to sleep and I just have the most horrible dreams. And this went on for probably about two years. Then I started to develop all kind of issues in my in my sleep. Started to affect my life outside of, you know, just sleeping, but just day to day. I just I just felt numb to everything. And as I was fighting this private battle, I, I prayed that the Lord relieved me from it and, and relief did not come, not when I wanted it to. But every now and then the Lord encouraged, would encourage me through his word, through his vessel, my wife, um, and then sometimes in, in dreams as well, I would gain encouragement from them. And one time I had fallen asleep and I had this dream that I had died. And I saw my, I had died, and then all of a sudden, I was in this dark, dark room. And as dark, I mean, when you say dark, like, I mean, 
I mean black, dark, nothing in front of you. Just empty room, but I could hear other people there as well. Couldn't see them, couldn't see anything in front of me, but I could tell like it was a big empty room. You could hear the echoes and everything. And all of a sudden, when I first died, I thought, in my dream, I thought, wow, this is, this is great. Like, I, I'm going to be with my mom again. Like, this is, it, it's, it's finally happened. This is, this is good. And so I began to search for her. Couldn't find her. Couldn't see anything. All I could do was hear people, no matter how close they were to me. I never ran or bumped into anybody. I could just hear them. But something I started noticing about their voices was troubling for me. They were... They were calling out for the Lord, but, but they couldn't find him. And the longer I searched for my mother, for the Lord, I, I couldn't find them. And so panic started to come over me. I just became very afraid. And the first thing I started thinking was, it was all a lie. It's all a lie. I thought... Everything I've ever done has been for nothing. I thought God deceived me. And I'm walking around trying to, trying to find the Lord. And, and I, in this dream, I, I've just lost hope. And I, be, I start to become angry. And I'm sitting there and I just, I just want to do something. I just want to scream. I just want, and, but I can't do anything. I, I'm just standing there trying to understand what is happening? I have died, and there is no hope. I have died, there is no Lord. I have died, and there is only darkness and confusion and hurt and pain. And again, I don't understand what's going on. I'm, I'm dreaming. Then all of a sudden, I hear this rushing wind in the dream. And something points me or directs me upward. I look upward, and I see this light. It's a very, very small light, but you can see it. And I'm standing there, and I see this light. And as I continue to look up, the light gets brighter and brighter. The wind starts to get louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, I feel like something is falling from the sky, or whatever it is. It's just blackness, but something is falling so it looks like it's coming straight for me. I start to run away. And then all of a sudden, as I'm sitting there, this deafening sound just starts to come over my ears. And this huge golden cross just comes crashing down. I mean, it just boom. And, and, and it, it knocks me off my feet. And then I, I, I get up and I look and it's this huge golden cross. And the whole room is lit up. Every knee is bowing at that cross. And I'm like, I wake up at that instant. And I wake up and I'm like, sorry, Lord. I understand. Thank you for that hope that you have given me to move on another day. It was a beautiful thing and it reminded me of this passage, and I'm going to close with this. Romans 14, verses 7 through 9. 
says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord both of the dead and of the living. When we look at this story and we see Goliath and we see like, yeah, he's a great enemy. He represents so much more than just that. He is the greatest enemy. But there's, there's no need for us to be scared. There's no need for us to be doubtful, to be frozen in fear. Because no matter how great of a champion he is, we have a greater champion. And that's what we're going to continue to study in this chapter. Let us pray.